welcome to this IRF podcast. I am David Osman. With me today is Mike Taylor of Coldwater Economics. Our subject for this podcast is normality. What is it? And can the financial markets cope with it? The Independent Research Forum promotes a broad range of high quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro, some stock specific, some sector specific, some country specific, many global, and all are investment related. Mike Taylor founded Coldwater Economics in 2008, following a long and distinguished career based mainly in Asia as a senior economist and head of equity research with several leading investment banks, including Morgan Stanley and Deutsche Bank. Mike, welcome. Coldwater Economics is an unusual name, so it would be interesting to know why you chose that particular name. In addition, please tell us about Coldwater Economics and the service that you provide to your clients. Yeah, thank you, David. The name Coldwater Economics does sort of suggest that I might be uh, in the market for uh, taking pot shots at consensus. And in fact, what I'm trying to do is almost the opposite of that. Coldwater Economics, the name actually owes its origin to the fact that I enjoy bathing in the North Sea, which is very, very cold. Uh, it's a, a bracing and stabilizing thing to do. And uh, when I set up the company, I thought, yes, well, that, that, that seems like a reasonably good name. In fact, I realize now that it, it's completely appropriate because what I try and do at this company is immerse myself in the ocean of data that comes from the world's major economies and try and keep abreast of it all the time and to try and provide a pretty much comprehensive and timely uh, service so that people who receive my service are always in touch with what's basically going on. In other words, I don't spend a great deal of time trying to put out forecasts which may or may not be accurate. Rather, I put in a lot of concentration uh, into making sure that people have no excuse to not know exactly where they are at any one time. Now, the way I go about this is I track approximately 500 different data points each month. And from these, I identify those which uh, are arriving more than a standard deviation away from where the consensus suggests they should be or where trends suggest they should be. And from that rather big collection of data, uh, I construct what I believe to be the best-in-class series of shocks and surprises indexes. People who get my service uh, receive these daily updated uh, together with emails which just very briefly identify those bits of data which today you need to have noticed because they just might be telling you something because they're coming in out of where you'd expect them to be. And it's from that basis of absolute security in terms of knowing where the world actually is, that you can then start to construct ideas about where it might be going. Now, I have no um, fixed allegiance to any particular economic school of thought. Uh, I think that most economic ideas can be right some of the time and wrong some of the time. 
there are a small number of ideas which are, are prevalent in economics, which are just plainly wrong, always will be wrong. And some of those are very deep in some very popular ideas. And there's an even smaller number of economic ideas which I think are axiomatically correct. And those are the ones I try to use. Generally, I'm interested when I'm thinking about economies in return on capital. I'm very impressed, for example, with uh, DuPont analysis uh, that the equity analysts do. And I try and do something rather like that for macroeconomies as a whole. I'm interested in cash flows. Uh, and I'm interested uh, particularly in profits. And um, when I'm trying to give opinions later on in this uh, podcast, I'll be using some of those ideas. So, Mike, um, every day you put out a shocks and surprises email relating to Asia. You put out another one relating to Europe and one relating to the US data, highlighting the most interesting aspects of the data. And um, then you've also put out a summary, which is called the Macro Kernel. And I just wonder, in your latest Macro Kernel publication, what is the main message from your chart of cold water global shocks and surprises? Yeah, good question. Let me just bring it up. Well, I think that uh, a good place to start is in the chart that I put out which summarizes all the data from the, that we're getting from around the world, both from today and uh, from basically looking at this over a four-week average and over a 12-month average. And I think the salient point is that actually, really since about June last year, the world economic data has been essentially surprising people by being stronger than expected, stronger than trend, Uh, Really consistently, we've just not had a a period really since June uh, when we haven't been uh, positive. So on a 12-month basis, we're now uh, at the most positive we've been really since, I think, 2018, 2017. And that's, I think, probably the most important uh, message that that generally is out there at the moment. Uh, People are still underestimating the strength of the recovery that we've had in the immediate post-pandemic period. Just going through what we saw yesterday, it was a slightly unrepresentative day. Uh, I think the most important thing, obviously, was the uh, March ISM non-manufacturing composite index out of the US, which set a new record. And I think that was fairly clearly the main aspect of yesterday's data. And Mike, if I remember rightly, on the um, the recent European shocks and surprises, some of that data maybe suggests that um, there's maybe a little bit too much optimism about uh, where Europe's going in the near term. Well, I think we've seen the last uh, couple of weeks, we, we saw uh, the Eurozone's Economic Sentiment Index, which I have a great deal of respect for because it's a massive job to compile this thing from all the 27 different countries. But I think what people haven't, have got to take notice of is, is the, when that data was collected. The surveys were done um, basically in mid-March up to about the 22nd, 23rd. Same thing really with the uh, PMIs, which markets PMIs, which came, came out at the same time. And uh, again, the surveys were all being taken basically up to mid-March. Now, unfortunately, if you look at the way in which the pandemic has been playing out, really, uh, you only started to see that 
third wave really emerge around from about the 20th, 21st of March. And that's just about the time when those surveys were cutting off. So I think that whilst uh, it's interesting because it shows you the sort of optimism that is out there to be deployed when, when we get to the end of this pandemic in, in Europe, uh, I think that this, uh, I think we're going to see over the next month or so, a more realistic um, appraisal when it, as it becomes clear that France and Germany and Italy and to a lesser extent Spain are all, are all kind of back in the thick of it. So I think those will be retrenched a little bit. Now, there's a lot of interest at the moment in what's happening with inflation and, and the outlook for inflation. Your shocks and surprises inflation index shows that the recent run of inflationary data is the most lopsided inflationary that we have seen in recent years. What does this indicate about the outlook for inflation and bond yields? Now, that really is a very major question. And um, it requires a bit of a long answer. But listen, I'm, I'm going to say two things, first of all, um, about uh, three things, I think, that, that we should note. First of all, that... Just getting back to, I think people have forgotten what normal inflation is, what uh, we're used to. And they've forgotten it because obviously we gapped down massively as, as the pandemic uh, took a grip last year. And we're coming over the next few months into that period whereby the base of comparison becomes very, very difficult for year-on-year -year numbers. So <clears throat> I think it, it, it's quite possible that we're going to see inflation of inflation numbers sort of starting at 3% rather than 1% uh, as, as we go through into April and May. That's the first thing. That is just normality. It's nothing else. It's simply a, a resumption of normality. The second thing I'd say is that if you look at that data, I'm afraid you have to conclude that it is that the inflation problem such as it is, is lopsidedly coming from Europe. If you look at just going through the numbers, I mean, I think I've tracked about 150 data points on uh, inflation on prices this last few months. And um, of those in Europe, a net 44%, a net 44% are showing inflationary shocks. And that compares to 20, net 22% for the US, net 26% for Asia. So the inflation shock is being concentrated in Eurozone. And if we look at why that might be, I have, um, I have a suspicion that uh, what we're seeing is, is the impact of Europe's emissions trading scheme for greenhouse gases really getting out of control. Prices for CO2 are up about 140% year on year in the European trading scheme. And that's not because... The economy is coming back. It's because they've really tightened up on who can, on how many permits are available. In addition to that, in Germany, they've introduced another emissions trading scheme on top of that to take in building oil, heating oil, and uh, and, and transport oil. And uh, again, that's another. I think they put a floor price of twenty five euros on 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 on. Uh, on a, on a ton of CO2. Look, what that's doing is it's putting on essentially about a 15 or $16 a barrel extra onto effective oil prices in, in Europe. And I think that's why you're getting this increased shock in Europe. More generally, however, I am skeptical that we're going to see a real uh, inflationary breakout, despite the uh, monetary accommodation that we've seen during the pandemic. 
And I think there are several reasons for that. First of all, if you look at the throughout the world, the private sector is piling up surplus savings, which essentially means that they're buying less than they're producing. So it's a, a signal of basically markets that will tend to be oversupplied rather than undersupplied. Secondly, there's negligible wage pressure. I mean, you actually see we had virtually no hourly wage growth at all in the US uh, in, in the first three months of the year. You've also got a, a signal which I pay attention to, which is the cost of capital goods relative to the cost of the consumer goods they produce. In an inflationary period, capital goods pricings go up faster than the consumer goods, and that's not happening. And finally, uh, over the last uh, few weeks, you've obviously seen a change in the currency regime. The dollar is now strengthening against the, so, uh, the special drawing right against other major currencies. And that is a disinflationary tendency rather than an inflationary tendency. So I think we'll, we'll see normality. And I think people will be freaked by normality because they're not used to uh, seeing inflation rates at near 3%. I think bond yields are nowhere near where they have to be for that. And that, I think, is going to be the, the challenge of the next six months. So in, in, a, in a broader sense, would you say that um, we will see a return to normality when we look beyond inflation? It's very difficult to imagine that. People have to realise just how extraordinarily out of experience we are at the moment. Uh, the sort of things that are that are out of, way out of our experience are private sector saving surpluses in the teens rather than the single digits. Similarly, and as you know, obviously reflecting that, uh, we have government deficits which are still blowing out hugely, um, and no real sign anywhere that those are yet coming under control. And these major balances and flows within the economy are very, very far from normal. And uh, it's very uncertain. I think for bond markets, the and, and I think we should look particularly at the US bond market, I think you can split it in, into two. Uh, you can split the yield on, on US 10 years into two components, one of which is the tips yield, which is, I think equates to the a view on what's, what's likely to happen to real growth. And you can, and then you have the inflation or capital risk premium. Now, the capital risk premium has got back to about 2.6%. So it's back into around where you'd sort of expect it to be. And that, so if you like, that's not where your problem is. Your problem is in the tips yields, which are still negative. Now, you've got a situation where if the world continues to surprise, and if the US continues to surprise, and I expect it will, then uh, we're going to have um, a, a significant hike or upgrading in people's expectations of long-term growth rate potential. And in those circumstances, you don't have negative tips yields. You have positive tips yields. And even just getting into a resumption of normality, just, just normality in terms of GDP growth, then you should expect tips yields to be about 1.1 percentage point below the expected growth rate. So if you get back to an expected growth rate of 2.5%, you should be expecting tips yields to trend back to 1.4%, <laughs> you know, which is essentially, you know, what, 220, 230 basis points from where we are now. 
if you get back to anything better than normality, then your tips yields are going to go even higher. So if you look at that, then, you know, you're looking at 10-year bond yields, again, starting at 3%, not 2% or 1%. I think you should be looking for, towards the end of the year, you should be looking at bond yields of between 3 and 3 and 3 quarters of a percent. So I don't think that financial markets can deal with that very easily, because I think when you say that to people, people still think you're crazy. But all that's doing is restoring you to the sort of normal relationships that you have between growth, inflation, and bond markets that we've seen really long-term trends. So very difficult, very difficult. Does that make you extra cautious about equity markets? I am cautious about equity markets, but for slightly different reasons. I think what people assumed was that the pandemic would mean that profits would crash and consequently stock markets should crash. And that hasn't happened. Actually, however, um, the way I look at profits is I use the, there's a, a Polish economist called uh, Mikhail Kalecki or Kalecki, and he really laid out the, this idea that corporate profits are corporate savings, which reflect and can only reflect changes in savings elsewhere in the economy. And you can use this equation because it's axiomatically correct. Um, you can use this equation to kind of figure out what's happening to profits. And actually, profits during the pandemic did okay. And they did okay because you had this massive government stimulus. Now, if that stimulus is uh, curbed, as eventually it will be, then unless the private, unless the consumer starts spending more than he's earning, in other words, you have a disappearance of the private sector savings surpluses, then profits will get hit. And I think that's the, the nasty surprise that awaits us as we get back to normality. Now, it's not impossible, it's not impossible that all these balances can be well adjusted so they all come smoothly back into line and no one notices anything. It's possible, but it's unlikely. And as it's unlikely, I think you have to beware a certain degree of pressure on profits, which are at this point absolutely not expected. If we look at where valuations are now, I think valuations are not particularly stretched in the US. They're not particularly stretched in the UK. I think they are wildly stretched in both Germany and Japan. Uh, and they have been for some time. In Germany, I think you should track that overstretching by looking at um, the amount of money that's washing around in Germans' financial system. Uh, and you can track that by using a thing called the Target 2 number. It's a bit technical there. And in Japan, you can track it by seeing how many ETFs Bank of Japan is buying because it's busy in the market, propping up the market every week. So I think at the moment, you've not got a massive valuation problem in either the US or the UK, but I think they'll come under pressure anyway because of profits. I think in uh, Japan and Germany, you have a very different situation where the markets are fundamentally seriously overvalued. Well, Mike, many thanks for this very interesting and informative insight into the advisory service that is provided by Coldwater Economics. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your analysis of the most recent surprises and shocks in the various economic data in Asia, in Europe and in the USA. 
The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Coldwater Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Mike Taylor of Coldwater Economics. 